Welcome back to Cherry Avenue True Crime Podcast. Thank you for listening. This is a true crime podcast, and this episode contains details of murder, domestic violence, and other things that may be troubling to some listeners. It is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. This case for this episode has two true crime shows that you can watch. There may be some more, but these are the two that I'm aware of. I've also done research on various websites and newspaper articles on this case, and I will cite those sources at the end. The TV shows are Fatal Vows, Descent into Madness. I really recommend this one. I respect a lot of what the psychotherapist, Stacy Kaiser, and forensic psychologist, Dr. Brian Russell, have to say. The other show is Mind of a Murderer, and the episode is called Heat of the Night. Dr. Michelle Ward is excellent as well, and her show is different in that she interviews the murderers in each case and tries to get into their minds, so to speak. So if you are interested in hearing more about this case, I recommend both episodes on these shows. Troy Patton was born and raised in Havana, Illinois. It is located in central Illinois and has a Riverwalk Park that is very popular. The 2018 estimate shows that it is a small town with just over 3,000 people in it. At 32, Troy was a driver for a soda company. He would deliver the soda, or pop, depending on where you live in the U.S. and what you call it, to stores and the other places that stocked the popular soft drink. Rumor has it that it was Pepsi. Troy was a good-looking young man, and people said he had a friendly, outgoing personality, and everyone on his route liked him. His mother is interviewed in both shows, and you can see where he probably gets his good looks, as she is a very attractive woman now and was most likely very pretty in her youth. His mother describes his crooked little grin that everyone fell for, and I know exactly what she means by that. Right away, I like his mom, and I think we would like Troy. Janine is 33, and her last name is DeFord at the time that she meets Troy. She lives in Lewiston, 12 miles from Havana. She is a nursing assistant at a nursing home and mental health facility. Troy delivers to her facility, and they get to know each other, and ultimately become intimately involved. The problem is that she was married. She had two kids, and she was married to a police officer. When Troy's friends meet Janine, they see how much of a couple they have become, so they are surprised to discover that she is married. Troy tells his friends that Janine is going to leave her husband and that she is waiting for the right time to do it. His friends are surprised, though, that Troy would even be involved with a married woman. But they can see he is already in deep. Dr. Brian Russell, forensic psychologist's quote on this is, There is infidelity at the beginning of this relationship, and it is absolute idiocy to get involved with a married person. Because if they will cheat with you, they will cheat on you. Turns out, the guy she is married to at the beginning of the relationship with Troy is her second husband. Her first marriage was when she was 22, and she had her first child, a girl, with that first husband. Janine went right from that first marriage and jumped right into the second one. She has her second child, a boy, with this husband. According to Janine, the second marriage was going bad when she met Troy. She claims the second husband was verbally abusive. 
In the fall of 2003, Janine does get her divorce. Janine has already moved in with Troy when this happens. Troy bought a three-bedroom home for the two of them and their children. Troy had two girls, and Janine had a girl and a boy. Both have shared custody with their former partners. Almost a year after they move in together, they get married. It was a rushed wedding so Janine could get on Troy's medical insurance as she needed some type of surgery. Six months after they got married, they did a renewal of vows ceremony so that everyone could attend. Troy's mom and Janine's daughter said they believed they were truly in love at that time. A lot of people said that Troy was really good with all the kids and bonded with Janine's children. At first, they were all very happy and having a lot of fun, but these same people say Janine didn't bond with his children as well as Troy did with hers. Troy's sister says she thought that Janine was somewhat jealous of Troy's daughters, which you do see some of, sometimes, in blended families. The mail carrier was Troy's ex-wife, Lisa, and the mother of his girls. Janine and Lisa became good friends. While step-parents and real parents being on good terms is a good thing, being as close as close as Janine and Lisa were behaving was unusual. One story goes Janine showed Lisa her nipple piercing just after having it done. Another story is she asked Lisa to deliver their mail to the microwave in the garage. So as Stacy Kaiser put it, this is an unusually close relationship and shows signs that one of them is trying to manipulate the other. Some people describe Janine as having a bipolar-type personality, where she was either going 100 miles per hour and talking so fast that you could hardly follow her, or she was on her low and not talking or barely talking at all. Other people say she was taking ephedrine, diet pills, which were causing her mood swings. The primary ingredient is ephedra, which eventually became banned. When it was banned in Illinois, Janine got it from the internet. Troy was worried about her and tried to get Janine to stop taking it. Her mood swings became increasingly more dramatic. One night, she locked herself in the bathroom and threatened to commit suicide. Troy spent hours trying to talk her down and to get her to open the door. It was also known that Janine would get physically abusive as well with Troy. He was actually seen with a black eye one time, fingernail scratches as well on his face another time. There were holes in the wall at their house, and as far as anyone knows, that is the only thing Troy hit, out of exasperation and probably trying not to fight back against Janine. But Janine's daughter says she never witnessed anything like that. She said her mom had a temper, but she didn't think it was over the top. It was reported in an article that Troy's daughters said that they had seen their stepmother hit their father. They said she would hit him right in front of them, so they could only guess at what she would do when they weren't around. Janine said her second husband became verbally abusive, and that is why their marriage didn't work. Her second husband and the father of her son says she was the abusive one. It worried him so much that he kept a diary of her behavior and when he thought she was yelling too much at the children, or being physically rough with them. Troy's ex-wife was said to know about some of the troubles, but said he was trying to make his marriage work. He didn't want to put the kids through another divorce. 
Dr. Michelle Ward interviewed Janine in 2014, and she says that Janine is someone who cannot be alone. People like this literally go from one relationship to another. She calls it monkey bar relationships. They don't let go of one until they have the next one firmly in their grasp. Because physical abuse from a wife to a husband is embarrassing to a man, they often cover it up and make jokes and laugh it off. It is possible for a woman to physically abuse a man, but we just don't hear about it very often because of that embarrassment. Troy was promoted from driver to salesperson, and this was a good thing for the family. However, despite the salary bump and having two incomes, the couple were having financial difficulties. Reportedly, Troy was unaware of this, though, until a woman who was renting Troy's old house bought him his mail that had been delivered to her by mistake. It was a bill for Troy and Janine, and it was months past due, with a final notice on it. Turns out, Troy wasn't aware of this because his ex-wife, Lisa, was putting their mail in the garage in an unused microwave. This is where Janine had asked her to put it, and for some reason, she did what she said. So Troy wasn't seeing the mail as it came in. Halloween 2015, Troy and Janine went to pick up his kids from his mom's house. Troy went in by himself to get them. Janine was upset at how long it was taking them, so she started repeatedly beeping the horn, just laying on the horn in front of the house. Troy came running out thinking that there was a problem, but Janine was just angry she had to sit there for so long. Obviously, she could have gone in the house as well, but she didn't. So they all get in the car, and she is screaming and yelling at him the whole time. She took off driving fast and erratically. Troy's girls said she was yelling at him and scaring them with that and her driving so fast on a dark road. And then there were rumors that Janine was having an affair with a psychiatric patient. When Janine told the patient they had to cool it off for a while, he wasn't happy. He told the staff at the facility. Janine countered that she hadn't been intimate with him, that she had actually been raped by him. It was taken into account that the psych patient could be delusional, so it was possible he made the story up. But if that is true, why does Janine tell her husband she was raped? Troy asks her about this. This was supposed to have happened at the hospital, so why didn't she report it to the police or her bosses right there at the hospital when it happened? Janine chooses to tell Troy that it was rape while they were at a bar after they had been drinking. He has been asking for her to tell him the truth about this patient because he is starting to believe what he has been hearing and that possibly she was capable of having an affair with this man. So Janine blurts out that it was rape. In the bar, people saw Janine grabbing a beer out of his hand and throwing it at him. They both left the bar and took separate vehicles home. A couple hours later, police are called to the home. When they get there, they find Troy lying on his back on the floor. There are also two shotguns on the ground, and a man is hovering over Troy. At this time, Troy is alive, but seriously wounded. Janine was yelling as they were taking Troy away in an ambulance. Not everything she said was intelligible, but some of it was. They did make out that she said she had shot her husband, 
but that it had been some kind of accident or mistake. They said she was very upset and wanting to go in the ambulance with him. She told police that she was going to commit suicide. She got a shotgun and loaded it. She then thought about her kids and changed her mind. Then in the darkness, she saw a shadow, and she says she thought it was an intruder. So she says she then just turned and shot. She shot him in the head. Troy Evan Patton is pronounced dead at the hospital. He is only 34 years old. It turns out the man who was near Troy when the police came was a neighbor who was doing CPR. As a forensic psychologist, I can tell you one of the most common lies that people tell when they commit murder is that it was a suicide gone wrong, Dr. Brian Russell said. Also, if you live with someone, you don't live alone. Why would you expect a figure you see to be an intruder and not the person you live with? Neighbors say the couple were fighting outside of the home before the tragedy unfolded. Janine went into the house and locked Troy out. She went and got a shotgun. She brought it out and pointed it right at him. He backed away, and she went back into the house. No one knows why Troy tried to get in the house again after that, unless he thought Janine was going to kill herself, and he was trying to talk her down. He kicks the door open after trying several times. Soon after that, the neighbors hear a loud bang. The neighbors called 911. Janine's blood sample tested positive for cocaine, meth, and amphetamine. This is obviously a concern and most definitely would affect her thought processes and mood. They also feel the diet pills had an effect on her mental state. They would give her energy and make her more upbeat for a while but it would also make her more aggressive, and she was already an aggressive person. As it turns out, she had gone from the ephedra to cocaine and then methamphetamine, which she figured would have had the same effect, but possibly on a larger scale. So some of the money problems were now being explained. It came out that some people knew Janine as someone who liked cocaine and meth. The money was being spent on drugs. It's not cheap to feed those habits. $22,000 had been withdrawn from Troy's retirement savings. Troy had borrowed some money against his retirement savings, but family looked through the paperwork and recognized his signature on one of the papers. But there were other papers that he did not sign. They knew those were forgeries, and he had $248,000 in the retirement account. Between that and his life insurance, there was motive. Janine ended up pleading guilty to first-degree murder. She was sentenced to 30 years in 2007. In her interview with Dr. Michelle Ward, Janine says that she and Troy started doing drugs together. She especially liked cocaine, and she says Troy liked marijuana, which she didn't like as much so Dr. Ward confirms she likes stimulants more, and Janine agrees. Stimulants, Dr. Ward says, are especially dangerous with someone with Janine's extreme mood swings because they exacerbate them. In this interview, she admits that she did have an inappropriate relationship with that patient. Janine says it was only kissing, that it never went past that. She says nothing about rape. 
Dr. Ward asks why she said she was raped then. Janine said, well, it was almost rape. Another thing that Dr. Ward asked about is, why did Janine plead guilty to first-degree murder when she says she didn't mean to kill him? That she had no intention of killing him? Janine tries to say it was about not putting family through a trial and things like that. However, while in jail, before she had even gone to trial, Janine was writing to a male prisoner. She got to the point of telling him that she loved him and that she would have a life with him and that she would have his children as soon as both of their cases were over. As Dr. Ward says, this shows her pathological need to be in a relationship. Also, these are very similar, if not exactly the same words that the mental patient claimed she said to him during their intimate relationship. Soon after those letters were discovered, she pleaded guilty to first-degree murder, avoiding trial. Tim Hansen, Special Agent, Illinois State Police, said the fact that he had those letters was a significant factor in her accepting the plea deal. She didn't want those to become public. Troy's sister feels that if she didn't really mean to kill her brother, then she would have gone to court and had a trial. Janine, taking the plea deal, confirms to her that she meant to kill her brother. And as much as we feel bad for the victim here, Troy, and his family, we have to remember the children. The kids were just as much victims. Troy's daughters lost their father, and they were exposed to traumatic events while spending time at their dad's house. Janine's children lost their mother. She may get out sometime, and they can communicate with her if they choose, but she is still not there on the day-to-day for them. They were also exposed to dysfunctional, if not traumatic, events while at their mom's house. It is so important to be careful as to who you let into your children's lives. It is very important. And illicit drugs are never a good thing when you are a parent. If someone decides to be a parent, you have to realize first that your children need to take priority. A woman who murdered her children, but was denying it at the time, was interviewed on TV and they asked her what she missed the most about her children. She said, I missed the love they gave to me. I missed it when they loved me. While that is all well and good, when that is the first thing that comes to your mind, it probably means life is all about you and everyone here on earth are to serve some purpose in your life. And in other words, narcissistic or borderline personality, etc. The woman was Diane Downs, and she did in fact murder her children because her boyfriend didn't want children. While obviously this is not at all like Janine and Troy's case, it's just an example of how some people do not take parenting and do not see children the same as someone else might. You have to be careful who you let into your children's life, especially if it is a significant other. I think all of us, or at least most of us in the true crime world, already know this, but it doesn't hurt to pass it on, to let other people know, to remind them just how important it is to take those relationships and how much their children are affected by them. Stay tuned for the historical newspaper clips that are similar to this case for our History for Dessert. This one's from the Tampa Tribune, Tampa, Florida, 
January 23, 1930. Fires when he kicks down door. Another man arrested. Mary Danford, a little slip of a woman in a red dress, shot and probably fatally wounded her husband, Harry Danford, at their home, 1016 Memorial Highway, early this morning, when she said he came home drunk and tried to beat her. She fired one shot when Danford kicked down a door. The bullet entered the man's abdomen, and at the Tampa hospital he was given a slight chance to recover. The woman was arrested along with Louis Hazelbean, a taxi driver, whom officers found in the house when they went to investigate. Danford, dying, was lying in a bedroom where the door had been beaten down. The woman's pistol, a thirty-two caliber, with one chamber empty, was lying on the dresser. Mrs. Danford readily admitted the shooting. He started to beat me, she said. I ran into the bedroom and closed the door. I told him if he came in, I'd kill him. He kicked down the door and I shot him. The officers pulled a pistol out of Danford's pocket. They said Hazelbean was armed as well. The woman apparently kept a gun in her bedroom. Besides being held as a material witness, Hazelbean was charged with carrying concealed weapons, being drunk and disorderly. Mrs. Danford was held on an open charge pending the outcome of her husband's wound. The woman herself telephoned the police about 1230. Send an ambulance to 1016 Memorial Highway. A man's been shot out here, she said. Call Officer Clement went speeding out with an ambulance, and when he found it was just outside the city limits, outside of police jurisdiction, he called Sheriff Jofflin, who then, with the Deputy McGee, went to take charge of the case. With Danford on the way to the hospital, the woman waited for the county officers, talking freely to the policeman. She claimed self-defense and said her husband would have killed her had he ever gotten into her room. She said she'd been married a little more than a week, and she described her husband as something of a troublemaker. She gave her age as 28 and her husband's as about 33, but she didn't know exactly. Her story had not been checked yet this morning, and numerous details were lacking. For one thing, she did not explain Hazelbean's part, if anything, in the case of the fight. She did not explain why her husband and Hazelbean were armed or if old trouble existed. The officers were inclined to believe that the shooting was not the result of a family argument this morning, but went further back to other happenings. They wanted to learn more about Danford's record, his employment, and why he was armed. Mary Danford was not much concerned about the shooting. Her husband wanted to beat her. He kicked down the door and she shot him. That was all. She went calmly to the county jail in her red dress. While she talked freely, she was not voluble. Her sentences were short and quick. The sheriff will ask her a lot of questions today. If her husband dies, it will be a job for the state's attorney. Once Danford fell, sprawling through the battered door, he lost consciousness almost immediately. He was still unconscious two hours later on the operating table at the hospital. His wound is a dangerous one. He may not live through the day. The house where the couple moved after their recent marriage has been the scene of numerous boisterous parties and neighbors have been complaining among themselves, if not to the officers. Late hours were kept there, it was said, and cars went to and from the place throughout the night. Sheriff Jofflin found several persons at the house when he arrived early this morning and names were taken for possible witnesses. 
The hasty investigation did not reveal, however, if there were witnesses to the actual shooting. All the officers had was Mary Danford's story, and she told them that briefly in hasty, bitten-off sentences while she primped her bobbed hair. This one is from the St. Louis Globe Democrat, St. Louis, Missouri, June 17, 1957. Wife shoots husband during quarrel. Edwin C. Lindsay, 19-year-old LeMay Welder, was shot and seriously wounded early yesterday following a quarrel with his wife at their home, 111 East Arley Avenue. Police quoted his wife, Wanda Joyce, as saying she picked up a small caliber rifle, pointed it at him, and pulled the trigger. Not thinking it would go off, Lindsay fell with a bullet in his back. Taken to county hospital, Lindsay told police he would not press charges against his 19-year-old spouse. Wife shoots husband she said abused her. This is also St. Louis Globe Democrat, but it's April 24, 1922. Wife shoots husband she said abused her. Edgar Leffelman, 32 years old, of 2950 Easton Avenue, was shot in the left thigh at 7 o'clock yesterday morning by his wife, Elsie, after he had, according to his wife, come home in an intoxicated condition and abused her. According to Mrs. Leffelman, her husband, after being away from home all night, appeared with two friends at 5 a.m. Leffelman struck her and humiliated her, she says, and then left. He returned two hours later alone and resumed his cruel treatment. She obtained a 32 caliber revolver and shot him once. And the last one is in Tennessee. Is Knoxville, Tennessee, July 14, 1906. Wife shoots husband who returns to home. Tennessee woman who seeks divorce then surrenders to police. Robert A. Milligan, a well-known railroad man connected with the Southern Railway, was dangerously shot by his young wife, Mrs. Stella Knox Milligan, when he called at his home to obtain some clothing. The previous day, Mrs. Milligan, through attorneys, filed a bill for divorce in the Chancery Court, and after enjoining Milligan from molesting her or coming about their home or from interfering with their child, tied up his bank account and real estate. Mrs. Milligan then left the house and she was and gave herself up to police officers. She was escorted to headquarters where she gave bond to answer to the charge of felonious assault. Thank you again for listening to Cherry Avenue True Crime Podcast. Remember uh, to hit the subscribe button so that you don't miss any episodes. Um, Also, share with a friend, post a positive review on whatever podcast app that you use. And if you'd like to visit us on social media, we are in Instagram as Cherry Avenue True Crime Podcast, uh, Facebook, Cherry Avenue True Crime Podcast, and also on Twitter as Cherry Avenue True Crime Podcast. I hope you all have the happy holidays, Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, whatever you celebrate. And remember, be safe.